This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to the Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. The Jason Kavnis Experience is brought to you by Kavnis HR. At Cabinets HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the United States. Did you know that most small businesses lose $27 million per year on bad HR, but comes out to an average of $10,000 per employee, or that, or that small business owners waste 25% of their time on HR? Cabinets HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. Our guest today is David Stepania. David, are you ready to be great today? Yes, sir. David is a co-founder and CEO of Thirsty Sprout a hiring marketplace for specialized remote engineering talent. David has over 10 years of experience in business development in high-tech industries. He grew his last business, Data Micro, which sold Cisco products from $0 to over $20 million in three years. He has acquired customers from Fortune 500 companies, including FedEx, and Avnet, Progressive, and UPS. And the first incarnation of Thirsty Sprout he linked partnerships with WeWork's entrepreneurial community and built engineering teams for companies like Rover.com, other venture funded startups. David, thank you for doing this today. Thank you for having me here. So, David, let's talk about your breakfast real fast. You're from Georgia, correct? Yes. And not the state, the country. The country, yeah. A lot of people get, get that wrong. So, what is it, what is it like growing up there? And Georgia, for those who don't know geography, that Georgia is like right next to, the, to Russia, correct? Yes. Um, yeah, we, we used to be part of uh, USSR. Um, and then 1991, we broke off. We had a war. Uh, I, was, uh, I was there during that time. And then, uh, you know, at some point uh, in 1994, I moved away to Slovenia. Um, I lived there for a few years. I followed my, uh, brother to the United States. He was a professional basketball here playing for the Seattle supersonics. Um, and then in 1998, what was it 1998? Or no, actually it was like 2000. I forget what exact year, but I, I went back to Georgia and, uh, another war broke out between Russia and, uh, and Georgia. It was last about three days. Uh, I guess I was lucky enough to have been there in some way. And, uh, just, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm still here. I'm alive and I think things are good. So what's the name of the territory that Russia took away from Georgia? Ossetia, something like that. Yeah. Ossetia, uh, and Abhazia. Abhazia was in 1991. Uh, and Ossetia is the most recent one. And so, I mean, I'm not, you know, a political expert, but in, in many ways, Russia does it to kind of destabilize the region so that we don't, uh, so that the United States doesn't come in there and build the, you know, uh, military bases, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of ironic. So when I was in the army, when I'm a major in the army, they seem to, to a school called Fort Majors. Mm-hmm. It's a year long school in Fort Livermore, Kansas. And our case there for the whole year was the, the Georgia war from, so we studied that for the whole year, right? Mm-hmm. Like the political stuff. So it was pretty interesting. So I didn't know your, your brother played basketball though. Yeah. He's about seven feet tall. 
and he was one of the first players to uh, to make it, or he yeah, he was the first player out of Republic of Georgia to make it into the NBA. And he played for the SuperSonics the whole time. Uh, played here for two years. Played uh, for Miami for two or three years, and played for Portland Trail Blazers for about two years. And he's seven foot tall. Seven foot. I mean, tall. you're pretty tall yourself, right? Yeah, six six. Yeah, so, you're, you're, not you're, not as tall, but yeah, he's uh, he got the tall genes in my family. That's pretty tall. So when you moved from Georgia to the states, how old were you? Uh, from Georgia to well, I moved from Slovenia to states, uh, but I was 14 years old. And I bet that had to be a culture shock. Yeah, because I moved from you know a, a city or from two cities. Like, you know, I lived in Tbilisi before I, I moved to Slovenia. Uh, to Slovenia. And then from Slovenia, I moved to uh, Chesterton. And Chesterton is about a city of uh, about 5,000 people in Indiana. Um, I mean, just Indiana Chicago. in general. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's crazy, you know, like I came from like a you know city that had, a, you know, a few hundred thousand people population or in Tbilisi, it's like over a million um, to Chesterton, which had like 5,000 and everyone listened to country music. You know, there wasn't like too much to do other than like yeah, play you know, sports yeah, or go, or go <laughs> to farmland or big yeah. probably. Yeah, everyone's all about high school sports, like basketball. And that's the reason like I, why I was sent there is to play basketball. And it's a good way to focus, you know, like it's a good way to, uh, you know, focus on school and sports and also be part of a good community for the most part. Like, like everyone's all about, you know, the, uh, uh, having a good community, et cetera, et cetera. And, and yeah, I mean, for, for a year I was, I enjoyed it in some ways. I missed, you know, my home at, at the time, but then, you know, after moving back to Seattle, I, I got exposed to the city. Things were a little bit better, but now that I think about it, I sometimes I miss, you know, Indiana as well. Yeah. Cause you definitely focus less to do either you focus yeah. what you got to do or what else you're going to do. Right. There's yeah, no, yeah. no, no distractions, so to speak. Right. Right. But yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. They're all about sports. We had to run around the dunes. I don't know if you know like what that's all about, but like it was tough. Uh, you know, like they, they pushed us to our limits and until we were like, you know, Puking, sorry for it. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but, but but yeah, it's it's it, it it gave me a good taste of true America. I would say. <laughs> That's very true. Indiana, yeah, yeah, true America. Yeah. That's where I learned to eat steak. You know, there's it was it was a I'm yeah. sure there's a lot of steak and potatoes. <laughs> oh yeah, lot lots of barbecue and grilling. So David, how many languages do you speak? Uh, so because of moving around this much, uh, you know, I, I was born uh, to a Georgian father and a Russian mother. And, you know, I learned both of those uh, growing up uh, as a third language. My mom enrolled me into a, 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 into a, you know, a program with a German tutor. I learned German actually because I, I studied for about, you know, 11 years or more. So I was fluent at some point. Uh, besides that, I also learned Slovenian and Croatian, um, and now English, right? So, uh, about six. And you, are you, are you like pretty much fluent in all of them or you, or you just get by in most of them now? Uh, so, so, you know, uh, Russian, Georgian, English, I'm fluent. 
Slovenian, I used to be fluent. Now I'm a little rusty. And German, I used to be fluent. Now I'm also probably a little bit rusty. So if I go back there, I, I can probably pick it up within a week or two. That's usually what happens when I go back. And so let's talk about Seattle for a minute. You know, everyone knows what's going on in Seattle. You know, how, how has Seattle treated you as far as like your, your business? Has it been as far as startup community, tech community, and everything going on, you know? Uh, Seattle is good uh, for the most part. Uh, the, you know, before Seattle, I was living in, in Hawaii for three years. And I came back to Seattle for that specific reason is to grow my, this current venture. Uh, and so far, you know, Seattle has some uh, drawbacks to the startup community, I would say, as like, you know, the, a lot of the founders aren't as uh, involved in the startup community as they are, for example, in San Francisco or some other, uh, you know, like maybe New York, Boston. But I'm, I'm, I think that's changing a little bit and hopefully for the better. But for the most part, you know, we've, we've done okay. We've gotten, we've, we've gotten exposed to, uh, you know, some big companies and for the most part, you know, it's, it's good place to be in. Yeah, it's definitely, Seattle is definitely a good place to be in versus some other places, right? Yeah. But one thing, a lot of people say, oh, we got to be San Francisco. Like, well, you're never going to catch San Francisco, right? Because they have such a head start mm-hmm. and you even want to be the barrier. But uh, yeah, some of the difficulties, like, my, this is just my opinion. I can't see how there's all these verticals, right? There's like startup grind, founders live, you know, all these different verticals. It's like they never like intermingle. Like they're always staying in the vertical and, and don't do stuff with other people, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's a challenge. Yeah, so it's more about like getting the 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 old successful founders that succeeded with their startups back into the startup community. For some 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 reason, they kind of drift away. Where versus in other cities, they kind of like come back into the into the scene, right? So that's the only drawback I would say, and I think it's like a lot of people would agree with that one. But other than that, uh, you know, like I said, there's so many promising companies here. It's just like it, it just takes a little more effort, you know, uh, connecting with them. Yeah, like people, I don't think people realize how many AR, VR startups are here in the Seattle area. I mean, this mm-hmm. is like one of the big big points for that in this area. People don't realize how many they are here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of a uh, lot of interesting startups. Uh, I think if uh, you know, S- Seattle is more focused on like the enterprise level startups, you know, like, uh, you know, like, it's it's you know the things that interest investors here are, are the next Amazon or the next Microsoft versus you know in San Francisco I think you have more like consumer driven uh, apps that have worked out really well for example like I don't know you know Airbnb or you know like Uber et cetera et cetera yeah that's a good point because I was at the Bay Area like a couple months ago and I was talking to someone there a VC investor I was talking to I was talking about you know how San Francisco is Seattle how Seattle's hard it's hard to get funding all that kind of stuff. And he had two theories that I thought made sense. One theory was like in, in the bear, he said like most startup founders, when they like quote unquote make it, get acquired, have millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. He said, we use all of them invest the money back in the stock community in, in mm-hmm. San Francisco. He said, as far as you knew in Seattle, when someone made it quote unquote, mm-hmm. they don't really invest it. So I don't know if that's true or not. That makes sense. Yeah, no, that's definitely. And I think that's one of the big issues here right now is like I said, like, you know, once someone succeeds, they kind of like drift off and you, you may never see them again. Um, and I think Seattle I mean, this is my personal opinion, but you know, like people don't come to Seattle for startups. People come here for high paying jobs at Microsoft and Amazon and whatever else, like be Facebook or whoever else has the office here. And then you don't have that passion 
of people of hungry people coming like they do to San Francisco and giving them the capital and the tools in order for them to kind of like succeed in a startup environment, you know, be that how, 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 you know, no matter how difficult it is, at least they have that opportunity in Seattle. That opportunity is, is not as good. And so that's the only downside I would say, but you know, there's others, uh, there's other ways to kind of like reach your goals if you're a startup. So, uh, you just kind of like, you know, need to adjust your strategy and like, you know, like what you're building and who you're building it for. And then at the end of the day, you know, like now with this pandemic, everything's becoming more remote, more global. So I think, you know, it doesn't really matter where you are. People from San Francisco are moving away to Idaho, you know, (laughs) because it's a lot cheaper to live there. So, so we don't know what's going to happen in the next like 12 to 16 or 18 months. Right. Because the world is shifting. Yeah. And then my VC friend hit another theory too. Um, history of like in, in San Francisco, all the investors there had been former startup founders, right? They knew the community. They know what's been entrepreneur. Where I said in Seattle, all the investors are more like people from Amazon, Microsoft. So they never, never really had a startup, right? There's all the right. enterprise, which goes to your point of Seattle's more enterprise focused on startups, which mm-hmm. makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then often like what I'll hear is like, you know, I mean, in Seattle, you almost, what they're looking for is not take on any risk almost. And they want you to have a startup that's working well, that has paying clients and it just needs a little extra capital to fuel the fire basically. Yeah. I like to say my opinion again, I like to say in Seattle, they they like you to have like a, they're more like a small business banker versus investor. Right. right. And they want you to be like, have a series metrics and for the PC. Right. Mm Mm-hmm which is always like frustrating. Yeah. So that's, the, that's, the, you know, that's, that's kind of sums up the story, I guess, of Seattle. So yeah. But once I would definitely tell people like, you know, you know, try, if you're in Seattle, try to raise money in Seattle, but don't forget about the Bay Area, Austin, Boston, because how, how many companies do you think try to raise money in Seattle until no, and they just stopped right and quit because they didn't, either didn't know or didn't think about going somewhere else. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I have one client that, you know, uh, was turned down here in Seattle, like very, you know, you know, like, you know, someone with a very good, great background in finance and, you know, no one really wanted to, no VC wanted to invest in his startup here. He went out to San Francisco. He had a lot of success, um, raising initial capital. And just now he, uh, wrapped up his series A for $8 million, a company named Giraffe. Yeah. I hear so many stories about like that, you know, yeah. So in, in San Francisco, they're just a lot more open to risk. I mean, they're smart about it, but you know, I think, uh, if you have an idea, if, it, if you're more at an idea stage and you have a good team, I think San Francisco may be the, sometimes the right place to be. Definitely. So at Thirsty Sprout, y'all do hire, remote hiring for developers. Mm-hmm. How do you vet these developers? I mean, cause I mean, obviously you can't bring them for in-person whiteboard tests, you know, they're in different countries, different nations. How do you like, uh, so, so in a nutshell, you know, you need, you know, three things for a developer to be successful in, in, in a remote position, right? They need to have the technical aptitude to do the job. They need to have good communication skills and then good discipline, uh, or otherwise, you know, like, you know, you're, 
time management skills. So those are like the three key things that we look for. Um, and oftentimes essentially like what, you know, that entails me, you know, like some of, some of it can only be achieved by your experience. I, you know, like in each, you need to showcase that you, you know, worked for at least three years with other companies in a remote setting and you've done it successfully. Right. Uh, Sometimes we take a not, you know, take a chance on someone who's excellent at, you know, in their technical abilities and their communication skills, but has mostly worked in an office and things have worked out. Um, other times, you know, we've had a case where they've done great, great on their technical tests and their communication is great, but they're just cultured and their, you know, time management was off. And for some reason, because of that, they weren't able to succeed in the position. And sometimes that's because, you know, they're afraid of uh, speaking up if they see an issue. And other times it's because they can't manage their time, uh, you know, efficiently. And they're just... Kind of fall off the project, basically, and the, you know the velocity of the how fast the project moves uh, falls. And the developers they're working with your customers one on one, right? So if you have a developer who doesn't have any people skills or non-responsive, that makes your company look bad, right? So you, I'm sure you got to do a really good job of vetting these people and making sure they're good match with your customers. Yeah, yeah. So we have, you know, my partner uh, in my company is an ex Amazon engineer. Uh, my other partner at the company, he's a CTO of a several or you know the was a, a cto of a couple of tech companies one of them that went through white combinator uh, raised over 50 million dollars and now he heads up indeed uh incubator so we have the right people to vet these developers out on the technical level um and as far as the communication goes you know like that's pretty you know straightforward um as far as their time management, that one is probably like the trickiest one. And the only way we've, you know, figured out how to crack that code is to kind of like go back to their previous hiring managers and talk to them about how they've done in their previous work. So developers, do all of them have the same technical skills? So you have, are you like all over the places for us, like tech skills for your people? No, I mean, so, you know, we have, there's a certain uh, level, uh, they need to meet in order to pass our interview. Um, but the skill set varies. Some of them have, you know, three years uh, experience and they do great. They pass, but it's, you know, it may not compare to someone who has worked for 10 plus years and, you know, he has a wider uh, skill set and, you know, when it comes to the technical aspect. So David, I love how you have your price on, on your website, right? I just, I mean, I just love that, right? I mean, so many companies are like, call us or, you know, I just don't like that. And of course, I'm sure you can negotiate, maybe get higher with a case, but why did you decide to put your prices on the website? Uh, so, so simple, you know, one of the simple reasons is because like people, you know, like we, we have specific countries that we hire from and those specific countries have, you know, uh, you know, cost of living associated with them. And so in certain countries, you can get an amazing developer for $40 an hour. And that same developer in the United States is going to cost, you know, $180 an hour. 
Um, so we want to be transparent about where we source our developers from. And we want our pricing page to kind of like dictate like, you know, the pricing ranges for, for those developers in those countries. Because oftentimes customers in U.S. don't know like how much a developer should get paid in Mongolia or wherever he might be. As of right now, we don't have any developers in Mongolia. But for example, we have a developer in New Zealand. And otherwise, you know, like we want to be uh, a trusted partner for companies to turn to, to figure out like what's a fair price to pay for a quality developer in say Eastern Europe or Latin America. So how do you find developers? Are you active recruiting or do developers come to you by word of mouth? Uh, so multiple ways, uh, actively recruiting is one of them. Uh, partnering with companies that have access to large networks of developers, be that, you know, uh, shared spaces in other countries, uh, or, you know, some partners at various accelerators. Uh, so we have just a, a, a bunch of different sources that we, uh, utilize and track to see which ones, you know, deliver the most quality. When a, a customer comes to you, is there a minimum number of hours they have to do a product with you? Like they have to like commit to like, you no know, 30, 40, hundred hours or certain price, price range. It depends. Um, you know, like <laughs> it depends if like my friend comes to me and says, Hey, you know, like I had, I, I need this little bug fix or whatnot. You know, maybe I'll ask one of our developers to take care of it. But ideally we, vet out our clients just as much as we vet out our developers. And so the reason for that is because we want to set our clients up for success. Oftentimes, uh, you know, some clients will go turn to say Upwork or another platform thinking they need a one-off developer, but really uh, what their project needs is a project manager, backend and a front-end developer. And so we want to be, you know, we want to be the, the company that they can, you know, turn to, to, uh, build the right team for their startup and whatever that may be. So how do you vet your customers? Cause I'm a big believer. Every customer is not a good customer, right? Like how do you go about doing that? If someone comes to you, has this great idea. Uh, so, so there's two things, um, you know, in, in some way, um, I've taken, you know, I've taken a customer who wasn't the most you know, where we had to sacrifice a, a lot on price and cost and because I believed in, in their product and it has worked out well. Uh, one of them just now uh, raised venture capital funding and they're scaling our team to over four developers. Uh, other times, you know, I would say... The, the easiest way to vet out, uh, you know, a, a bad customer is oftentimes in this business is to work with someone who's not technical and who's not responsive to uh, any kind of feedback. And uh, the issue with that is, you know, like it, it's kind of, it's the, the, the interest doesn't really Align because oftentimes they they'll see that the price in say India for developer is three dollars an hour and they think that they can build their app for you know a thousand dollars but it, and oftentimes it's it's very hard to 
communicate with a customer like that. Um, and so that's kind of like, you know, like what we oftentimes look for is a customer who has a technical co-founder and who knows what he wants and who we can work with uh, to build the right, you know, team for, um, for whatever that price range might be. So I know uh, there's a lot of VCs who will say that if you're a tech company, they're not going to fund you if you like outsource development. You know, other tech people like, you know, do we we'll do what do you can to build MVP and we'll worry about internal tech later. What's your opinion on that? It depends on the setting. And then that's like, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in that as well. Um, but like I said, like, you know, for example, our, our current company that we, that I just spoke about that raised money, they didn't have a technical co-founder. Uh, they had a technical advisor and their technical co-founder. I mean, you know, the, the person that came to their meetings to raise money was one of our developers. Uh, he worked directly with our developers as if, uh, the developer was his, his own. We were just kind of like handling, you know, uh, kind of like, you know, some consulting on who should be on the team and like, what would that, you know, like what would the successful team look like? And so he was able to get by without a problem. I think oftentimes what doesn't work is a non-technical co-founder who doesn't have the right team and who just wants some, you know, solution built. And oftentimes, you know, he outsources his idea to some dev shop wherever else in the world. And the dev shop does whatever they can for as little as they can to make as much profit as possible. And when that happens, um, what the customer ends up having is a solution that doesn't scale, doesn't work. Um, and you have, you know, an MVP where, you know, like your runway, like your financial runway has come to an end and there's not much you can do with it because you're just kind of like stuck with like a very minimal viable product. Uh, and you can't really do much pivoting uh, with it. And that's the, you know, that's the benefit of having a technical co-founder is like when you reach a point of running out of cash, if the technical co-founder really believes in your product, he can get you, you know, maybe another six months or a year uh, runway, right? So if you don't have that and if you outsource this whole solution somewhere and you didn't, you know, you didn't work directly with the developers, you just work with, you know, the project manager who's... Uh, goal is to, like I said, to make the most profit for a dev shop, that's where you might find yourself in trouble. David, can you talk about technical debt and what that is? And if so technical debt, is that responsibility of the CTO text team or is that responsibility of the CEO? And what is it? Um, technical debt, you know, it's essentially making the wrong choices and the wrong technical choices and having to pay for them later down the, down the road. And so uh, I think maybe there may be some wrong, con you know, some, some wrong connections of technical debt to uh, the dev shops for that specific reason I just spoke about earlier, which is, you know, like if you outsource just like one solution to, you know, with very light oversight to some dev shop, and, you know, who knows where, uh, what will happen is they'll take the, easiest pathway to achieving your goal uh, and sacrifice a lot of quality to get you what you want immediately. Uh, and so they can generate the most amount of profit 
And that oftentimes leads companies into whatever you know solution was outsourced into you know expanding onto, into their technical debt. Otherwise, every company has technical debt. Sometimes companies themselves have to make you know choices uh, to ship something faster and then figure out how to pay down the technical debt later. I mean, about seventy percent of I think sixty or seventy percent of development at bigger companies goes towards maintaining existing uh, features. It doesn't actually go towards building new features. And so companies are always looking to improve that process to kind of like, you know, uh, focus more on, on shipping new features instead of just maintaining old code. But it's, it's hard to kind of like escape all technical debt, I would say. So let's switch a little bit. Let's talk about business development. You're pretty successful as a business development person. What are some keys to be successful in business development? Um, I like to think, being honest, uh, you know, doing what you say you're going to do and being transparent, yeah, is, is the way to go. Um, but, you know, persistency and consistency is obviously at the top of the list as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just so many different ways, I guess we can take that conversation if there's like some specific, no, just in general. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that's it. I mean, knowing your market, knowing who you're selling to and like what, what you know, like what problem you're selling for, for, for them and doing it, you know, honestly and transparently is the way to go. I would say, um, putting this, it's a lot of work. It's like, <laughs> Uh, a lot of dedication. You gotta, I think one thing that helps me going is, is I, I truly want to help people succeed and I believe in what I do and it helps me push, uh, day in and day out. Uh, because otherwise if you're just kind of doing it just for purely for the money and I'm sure, you know, like you, you know, like there's plenty of positions like that. Um, I don't know. It's, 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 to me, it's, it's, there's has to be some passion element for it to be successful yes. in business development. So in a startup, whether you're like your startup founder or doing business development in a startup, how important is it to get used to hearing the word no all the time? Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's important to not just hear it, but figure out like why, why you're hearing these no's, right? But in some ways, like I've been, you know, to me, no doesn't really mean much as in like, you know, like you don't want to take offense to it. Uh, you want to figure out how to A, overcome it. And, you know, like, like I said, like initially, like you need to know like why you're getting a lot of no's if that's the case, right? Um, and you want to kind of like, have a percentage where you're getting 60% yes and like, you know, 30 or 40% no. Uh, and is it, is it the price? That's the objection. You have to figure out like, what's the issue with the, with the no, but what's like, is there a specific uh, case that you want to point out as far as like, no, no, no. I mean, it's an entrepreneur you're going to hear no all the time. Right. And you can't, and too many people I think take it personal, right? Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to take that personally. You just kind of have to have your vision and keep moving forward towards that vision. There's, you know, not, not 
so that, you know, your solution might not, right, might not be the right fit for everyone, but uh, it's going to be the right fit for plenty of fish out there. So talk about WeWork Labs. Thirsty Sprouts is a member of the WeWork Labs Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. So what, what have you gained from being WeWork Labs and how have you been able to utilize that, that community, so to speak, to help yourself and Thirsty Sprout? So I think WeWork Labs it, like, is, is great because before this, you know, I've joined WeWork like, you know, as just like a member at like a different location. And I've also tried out a different uh, shared space. And what was really missing is like a, a sense of community where you can, you know, you know, talk to someone at, you know, next door or at next desk or whatnot, who's also working on a startup and may have some experience that you may be missing and he can help you out on, uh, you, you know, with his mentorship, um, his or her mentorship. And that, in that regard, it has worked out great. And, you know, like I said, uh, we work with several companies from WeWork Labs and, you know, they've been happy. And that's, I think that's what it's all about. It's about having that startup community that's all driven towards, you know, the same, same goal, which is in some way improving the world via technology or hardware or you know, food or whatever else. Yeah, what I like about WeWork Labs Seattle is like, I know I was there for six months with my own company. And like, there was always like something going on, right? Mm-hmm. Some kind of some something like you know expert, and then like flying fishers up there, right? Grub six is up there. Mm-hmm. There's always something going on. I know they used to do like this weekly huddle where we come and like I need help with this. Yeah. So I just like the community. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great resource. I think. Yeah. No. Yeah. In that regard, it was also great. Lots of events. Lots of food. Uh, I was just, yeah. It was it was good. I probably gained a few pounds, but. <laughs> and then also people realized that rework labs is actually across the world, right? Because I know the Slack channel is like different we collabs across the world in the same section as you can reach out to people across the world with help or, you know, all that kind of stuff too, which I think is really nice. Yeah, no, the community is great. Like I said, it's like, it's, you know, there's some good mentorship. Um, there's, you know, like I said, like a lot of successful, uh, startup, not successful, like, you know, a lot of, uh, startups that are led by successful entrepreneurs are, you know, what I think will be successful entrepreneurs based on their career tracks and previous jobs and whatnot. So. Yeah. And just the level of expertise of startup founders up there. And I can only talk for the one here in Seattle. We were collapsing when I was there. Just the expertise of people there, the stuff they're doing, like, whoa, like you're, like, you're borderline genius, right? Right, right. Yeah. 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 So David, talk about your own entrepreneur journey. Like why become an entrepreneur? Why startups? Um, so in some way, like I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but then, you know, I went to college, uh, in college I was doing entrepreneurial things, I would say, <laughs> but you know, after college, I actually joined a, you know, a commercial real estate company. One of the, one of the, I think the, the biggest commercial real estate investment company called Marcus and Milichev. And this was at, at, you know, 2007 or eight, uh, recession, uh, during the 2000, 2000, 2008 recession. And the whole company just kind of like fell, not fell apart. I mean, they're still around. They're still one of the biggest, but like my, my manager quit. He started his own thing. Uh, all the other partners just kind of like ventured off into their own thing. And our floor was basically empty. And so I, 
decided to kind of like look, decided to look into tech. And one of the interviews that I lined up for myself was, you know, for a company called Centurion, uh, which was an offshoot or like was, was a entity that used to be part of a Siemens. It's like a, you know, $60 billion company, uh, electronics company. And there, when I got the job, I was heading up their business development efforts for all of North America. And I was working directly under, uh, you know, uh, the VP of sales for uh, North and Latin America. And, you know, he was probably one of the top sales guys I've ever um, met. And I wouldn't say sales guys, like, like I said, like he was a VP, you know, much higher than that. But um, I, based on his background, I also learned that, you know, like in order to succeed in, in this position, it's like you didn't need, you know, too much knowledge or too much like expertise in, in tech or engineering or this or that. Um, and so after working there for a year, we, um, you know, a friend approached me with a, with a, with a business venture, which was, you know, data micro. Uh, he found a partner in China who had a contract with Cisco and they needed, you know, uh, a, an office that, you know, here in, in Seattle. And so we opened that up for them. Uh, we became partners in, in, in this new business venture. And we took the company from having an empty office with no chairs, nothing to having our first shipment of Cisco come in from China into a public storage of all places. And we literally shipped them by, by our hands and fired the first few customers. And to me, it just, it felt great. It felt great. Like, you know, doing something that had, you know, just like, you know, like a, just an idea on the paper and taking that from zero to like, I said, like $20 million in revenue and like in, a, in year three, uh, hiring new people, creating jobs, like, you know, you know, like kind of executing on our vision. Uh, unfortunately, like I said, or I mean, I guess I haven't talked about this, but I, you know, the business actually was doing so, so great. At one point I was able to work remotely. We kind of like had all our systems optimized, you know, automated. And so I moved to Hawaii to do my, do my, do my job from there at some point. And, and this like venture, like Cisco came up with a policy that cut out certain, you know, distributors and one of them was us. And they did this by uh, telling the said distributors that, you know, the serial numbers for this uh, specific country need to be from, you know, like either Mexico or here, but not from China. And so we weren't able to source, uh, uh, source product anymore uh, or as much product. And so our revenues dipped. So we ended up shutting the business down, uh, which slowly kind of like, you know, created an opportunity for me to explore other ventures. Right. And so that's kind of like what brought me to Thirsty Sprout. But before Thirsty Sprout, you know, I also invested in a couple other startup ideas with a few friends and they didn't work out well. Like we outsourced to some, in, you know, some chop shop in India. Um, you know, we made mistakes of our own. Uh, our, you know, our, 
documents were, or our, you know, our scope was loosely documented. So they didn't know what they were working on. We just had some ideas and not for about, you know, a hundred thousand dollars that I wasted on, on these ideas, I decided there's got to be a better way to, uh, you know, find source, you know, quality talent, the same kind of talent that works at Amazon or, you know, Facebook there is available, like, you know, in other countries that doesn't really have access to, you know, to startups that need it most here in the U S uh, quality development for, you know, quality price. And so, um, that's kind of like what I ventured out to do. I started thirst sprout with another engineer and since then we've had some shifts and changes, but like now we have a core, uh, group of teams, uh, that's very strong and we're expanding and we're again, doing what we love. I think we're like executing executing on our startup vision. Sometimes, uh, things take a little longer than this business, you know, like we, we had about like one quiet year when we were starting up, but then we, you know, landed our first big client, which is Rover here uh, in Seattle. And we partnered with WeWork Labs. Uh, like I said, like one of our other startups just raised Series A. Another startup just got backed by uh, a, a venture capital fund. So we've done some good things, some good achievements in, in like a pretty short period of time in this kind of a business. And now we're on to our next... Um, milestone or not milestone, but our next, you know, yeah, I would say milestone, which is creating a platform out of our business. And that's kind of like what we're working on now. You've been a good part. I think so many, and I had to learn this lesson myself. So many entrepreneurs don't realize how slow the process is, right? Everyone thinks, Oh, I'm going to be, you know, a millionaire in six months, right? They don't understand the process. So first of all, being an entrepreneur is not easy, right? Everything has to line up, right? And everyone has to have your same drive. So many things to go wrong to knock you off, right? Yeah. So everything has to everything has to line up and it usually doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. And then you make a good point about remote work. So I'm interested from HR point, I'm interested to see what happens to all this over with. Like all, all these companies can say, Hey, hey, Jason, you know, Corona's over, come back to work, right? And with the building. I'm like, okay. So let me get this right. You want me to drive an hour to work, mm-hmm. stay in the queue for eight hours and drive back home. When I prove when I can like work from home, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's an interesting dynamic. And a follow up on that. So recently I've been doing a lot of Zoom pitches in the Bay Area, right? Mm-hmm. And all, all the VC have said, you know, right? If this coronavirus were here, we'd never done a Zoom pitch, right? We'd have made all you come in person to San Francisco, right? Mm-hmm. And then made it this opened up a whole new like a whole new level of people we can talk to, right? Because how these people wouldn't even come to the Bay Area, right? Right, right, yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's that's what we're like, you know, like what we're. Th- Banking on this is the fact that like, you know, like the world has changed, you know, um, 70% of developers or engineers don't want to give a go back to work or maybe not just developers, but just like workforce in general. Um, the other 30% wants to go back to work, but like, you know, now I think this creates an opportunity for companies that, um, that only hired on site to open up to remote work. And that's kind of like what we're thinking. Big enterprise companies are now going to be more uh, friendly or, you know, more open to hiring um, engineers or teams uh, remotely. And so that's kind of like why we're doing what we're doing. We want to build a platform that quickly allows them to log in, 
and find talent that's available for the, you know, vetted and available to do uh, remote development because not all developers are meant to succeed in a remote position. Some people just kind of like cave in after, you know, a month or two of being, uh, you know, stuck in a room. So they have, they have too much freedom, so to speak. Yeah. Or they have too much freedom and they can't, you know, organize their time, et cetera, et cetera. We want to, uh, we, we just want to have a platform that just, you know, you know, essentially cuts down on bad hires, um, and which can cause a lot of money, a lot of money, uh, can be wasted on, on, on bad development. I mean, we talked about technical debt. Like if you hire, you know, uh, you know, a developer that's not, you know, technically gifted and whatnot, not only are you losing time, which is, you know, you can't get back, but you're also losing hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. David, so for your point of view, what makes, what characteristics or values make someone to be a successful startup founder? Uh, I would say grit is one of them, definitely. Um, and you just have to, I, I think like one of the biggest things is, is like, you have to be open to, you know, going through a lot of pain, I would say uncertainty and pain. And you have to have a capacity to handle that pain, right? Because there's going to be just times where like, like you have a choice. It's like for right now, you know, I don't have a family or kids yet. I have a girlfriend and I have, you know, like my, my brother and my mom, my brother has have enough. But if I had kids at some point, you know, like kids or, you know, wife, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the choice is, is tough, right? Like you have your family and this is the oftentimes that, the, you know, like, the sacrifices the startup founders have to make or are facing is like, it's either your startup or like your family. So like you pick which one do you want, you know? And so as, as if you're, you know, like if you're young and you're like, you don't have you know, like, you know, family, yet, et cetera, et cetera. Like I think you're in a position where you can make that sacrifice. You can, you know, spend six, you know, 16 hours a day just on uh, either working on your startup or thinking about your startup and the other eight hours you go to sleep. Right. <laughs> but that's not always the case as you know, for, for all people, some, some have mortgages, big, big mortgages, big college expense, you know? So, so I would say it just, it depends. Like, you know, it's like, it depends how much, like, again, pain you can take on as a, as a founder. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, you make a good point. Like I say all the time, like if you're married, your spouse has to be like over hundred percent committed. Like saying that your spouse has to be on board, right? Your spouse can't say, Oh, uh, you know, do what you want, you know, uh, whatever they have to be like fully on board. Right. Cause, cause like I say all the time, you probably quit your job at Amazon. So you're making less money mm-hmm. and not only let's make them less money, you're spending money you don't even have on the startup. Right. And so if your spouse is not fully on board, it's, I think it's really hard for you to succeed. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it's hundred percent. That's, and I've heard so many cases uh, of that happening where, you know, like they have to make that tough choice, like whether they work on their startup or, you know, they you know, work on their family uh, matters. Right. And so, but that's not only the case in, you know, for, you know, like for, you know, married founders, but for example, you know, 
a CTO or whoever not part of the startup has to make those same choices. Like you get either paid, you know, like 60,000 plus equity at this startup or like your choice is like go to Amazon and make almost half a million dollars. Right. And so it's a tough choice when you know, those kind of uh, numbers and choices that you have as a startup founder, especially in the technical background and in, in the technical setting. So, and the, you know, the, the problem again is, is, is time. You could spend three, five, you know, oftentimes like you, you do need to make that, you know, five to 10 year commitment to your startup oftentimes. Right. And like if five years go by and you make no money, and your startup doesn't succeed, I mean, the cost, you know, opportunity cost of that is that, you know, you could have probably retired by now. Especially if you're on you know, Facebook. Like, <laughs> yeah, because, you know, because odds are your, odds are your startup's going to fail, right? Because, like, right. So like you said, you got to really have a passion for what you're doing. Right, right. And then, so you follow that passion for three or four years and, like, network at Amazon, where, you know, at Amazon, you make it for four or five years, you want to set for life, you know, that's a big opportunity cost. So you really got to have the passion for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. You have to have a passion for it. And, and, and yeah, that's, that's about it. Like that's where the grit and pain and suffering all comes all together. It's like, how badly do you want it? <laughs> so David, you talk about this a little bit, but can you go to more detail of your, of your vision for Thirsty Sprout? Like where do you see Thirsty Sprout being like five, 10 years? Like is it going to be the company at the platform everyone comes to for software tech talent or? Uh, so yes. I mean, like we've, been kind of like discussing that ourselves between me and my co-founders like like what are we trying to do as a business it's like do we focus on you know kind of like more individualized approach where we work with like few select clients and just like do a great work or like like do we become more of a product company and we decided to kind of like start shifting while we do have you know like the initial almost like consulting sort of an arrangement with many of our clients. Like we want to become more of a product company. And um, that's why we set out to build a, you know, a a platform, a hiring marketplace. And so um, ideally like it's, it's going to be very simple. We want to talk to companies that are hiring developers and they want quality vetted talent. And all we're going to ask these companies to do is go into our, platform and set a filter to the specific skill set that they're looking for in the specific vertical. And essentially like, you know, week after week, they'll get, you know, matched with that talent for their position that they're looking to fill. And so that's a lot more scalable than building custom teams for uh, startups, which like I said, like I've enjoyed, but like, I think now is the opportunity to kind of like, work with companies uh, we're going to be expanding into their remote hiring goals. And so that's kind of like what we decided to do. We're going to have something launched here in a month or two, I think. So Dave, you talk about this too, but what do non-technical founders get wrong about tech? Like, they, they, like I don't think a lot of like, non-tech people, oh, here's my idea. It, uh, my idea is going to actually go from my, my, from my brain to your brain. You know, every little thing I need, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just like so many things that <laughs> it's just like, it's hard to, I, I guess it depends on like the technical level of the non-technical founder, right? Like, for example, I was 
in some ways, like I've sold technical solutions all my life, but like when it came to engineering, like I was still not very, you know, like not very technical. Like when someone would tell me like, oh yeah, you know, like when I would talk to some founders or like some, you know, CTOs or this or that, like, and they would say, oh, this make, you know, this would, this will take like 300 to $500,000 to build. And I'm like, well, it's just, you know, like, I'm just trying to test the water series. Like, where am I, where am I supposed to find $500,000? This is, is is I'm just trying to build an MVP. Yeah. So, and, but then I realized it's like, you know, like what they're saying makes total sense now. Like, you know, now that I've learned, like, you know, working through various like startups, you know, like working with various startups, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that sort of thing makes sense. But then that doesn't mean that something that costs $500,000 to build can be figured out how to be built or like how to, you know, where you can build an MVP to test your idea. Sometimes for as little as like a few hundred bucks by building a landing page and driving some traffic to it. And so and that's oftentimes kind of like, you know, if someone comes to me and they're at a very idea stage of their startup, they don't really know their industry. They just have an idea of like what they want. And there's ways to test that idea. And some of it can be as little as like a few hundred bucks and some of it, you know, like, or at the very worst, you know, like you can put together a product for, you know, 15 to $30,000 and that's what you're risking. In some way, this, in, in some way, this is kind of like, you know, like, like the stock market. You have, you know, like you, you see how much risk you can take on and you look at like what the opportunity uh, if you succeed, uh, you know, like what that is going to turn into, right? Like you, you'll risk $15,000 to get accepted to an accelerator who's going to give you $100,000. And if you do that, that's like a bet worth taking, right? But you need to know enough about your business to be making those kind of decisions. And oftentimes like, you know, their startup founders come to me and they're like, oh, I have this idea. And like, they don't, they just like, you know, like they, they see someone can, you know, like put slap something together in, you know, like some country like India for like $5,000. And they think, oh, this is something that's same as, you know, like Dropbox or Facebook. But like if you could build Facebook for $5,000 or Uber for 5000 like everyone would build, build, build these things. Right. So. It would, and they wouldn't pay engineers half a million dollars to, to, you know, like to work on a, like, you know, microscopic task of the entire company. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, like I tell people all the time when I do a bunker labs, it's like, you got to tell people your idea, right? And your, and your spouse, your best friend doesn't count, right? You got to go tell strangers. And there's right. like so many people, and I'm sure you see so many people have this great idea. It was going to buy it. And like, Okay, are you sure about that? You know, and then you just wasting your money, wasting people's times. You know, like yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we got to brand it. I think. Yeah, first is like you got to tell as many people as possible and see if like if it's something that they'd want to use or not. As many, like you can start with you know, ten. Like if you have ten close business connections for whom you're trying to solve a problem, um, tell them if you're if it's a consumer app, tell to as many targeted demographic people like in that demographic as, as you can. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So let's go back to you being from Georgia. So being from Georgia, you're pretty much what would be considered an immigrant in the United States. And I, a lot of people have said, I agree that being an immigrant is actually an advantage 
be an entrepreneur because you have more drive. I mean, the most famous one I know is Gary Vee, right? From Belarus, you know, mm-hmm. talk about his story, all he has. From your point of view, does being an immigrant give you like more focus and more drive versus like, we'll say a regular American? Uh, I think it does. It, it it does. I mean, I have an odd upbringing where I like I like I said like I went to eleven different schools. So in some ways, like you know, like academics was a little bit like tough for me. Even though I went to like I said like you know University of Washington, this and that. Like, and that's kind of like that's my my I guess my drive. Um, I just I wanted to get like a degree here from the United States and I still want to pursue like an MBA. Um, but it came at a very high cost for me. Like, you know, between like class, between the ages of, you know, six to 10, like I didn't really even have like a textbook. I just, my, my mom just sent me to, oh, okay, like go to this school, just like, just to get out of the country. Uh, and I would just kind of like attend classes, not really learn much. Then I would like, you know, my mom would try to homeschool me on the weekends and I'd fly, fly back to Georgia to take the exams, pass the class. So I did whatever it took to get the job done. And I think that's kind of like what the, you know, like the grid that like oftentimes the kids are missing, uh, who are oftentimes given everything they want. And, you know, like oftentimes they just kind of like get by with, with whatever life gives them. Whereas like, if you come here and you're hungry to try and try and get things done, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just like, it, you can't teach that. I don't think, or maybe you can, maybe that's like when we were talking about Indiana running the dunes until you puke. I mean, that's like, <laughs> like welcome to America. It's like, I haven't had to do that <laughs> in, in Europe. So it's, it's different. Like, you know, like I think in the United States, you are provided opportunities to, develop that hunger and, and grit and et cetera, et cetera. So I can't just say that it's like, Oh, you know, just because you're an immigrant, like you have more, uh, you know, like more hunger because I mean, there's like, I played sports here. I mean, there's plenty of like hungry guys like that, like get after it. So, <laughs> so, yeah. so I don't know. It's, it's a weird uh, dynamic, right? Like, I don't know how, how you can measure like, you know, like, how bad someone wants something. Yeah. I mean, do you have, you don't like, you know, Kobe Bryant, his focus, Michael Jordan, his focus, legendary, right? Yeah. But, I mean, do you have it? Is it tied? Like, yeah, that's a good question. Like, is there no, what's it with oh, environment versus, you know, skill, you know, I think it's a question that will never, will never be answered. Yeah. Cause there's plenty of lazy guys in my country. I can tell you that much. And like, you know, like Latin America or like whatever, like wherever you look, there's plenty of lazy. I, mean, I think that's like same everywhere. Right. Um, I would say it's like also depends on your surroundings, which makes like, you know, like I said, like we work is a great place. You are surrounded by other hungry guys that want to succeed in a startup environment. So I would always say, or we actually just talked about, talked talk about this with my partner. Um, good is the enemy of great. You know, there's times when our like, or now like our business is going good and we can get complacent. Or we can create, we can do something that will, you know, like that will uh, push us harder. And so just like yesterday, we decided to do, for example, you know, my partner picked up a high performing journal that we fill out every day and we'll try to kind of like outdo each other on goals, right? Like, so you want to be in a competitive environment and where that is, like which country, yeah, doesn't, I don't think that matters too much. 
So how do you deal with this? You know, like you're pretty driven, pretty, pretty driven, pretty focused. How do you deal with people on your team or just on life in general who are like make excuses or not as driven or always take shortcuts? You just say, okay, that's the way it is. And I can't do anything about it. Or you try to like motivate them or you just say, you know what we have, or do you say we have different backgrounds and it is what it is. Yeah. I've been, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big problem. Like excuses. It's like, it's, it's like a huge, huge problem. And I think sometimes if you have, you know, like if, if, if you don't have like that high performing job background that you came from, uh, you know, like you can develop that excuses personality, so to say. Um, and you know, I've, I've worked with a few developers who needed a little, uh, you know, push in their back, um, and how to overcome it. I'm, I mean, I, I think as, as a leader, you have to find how, you know, find different ways. I mean, there's books I read on how to kind of like how to people manage, how to inspire others, how to, you know, like figure out like what drives them forward to, uh, see like, you know, like which buttons need to be pressed in order to get us to the moving into the right direction. So I can't really say there's like one specific way, but you know, like I think these are the skills you develop as a leader over time and there's ways to refine those, those skill sets. And there's many different ways, many different books that you can kind of like read on about. So Dave, yeah. this is my point of view. It's like an, I know here in Seattle, it seems like if you're like a, a mid-level or senior developer, it's like you just go from job to job, no problem getting a job. Mm-hmm. But if you're a junior developer, go from college or current academy, they have a hard time finding a job as a junior right. developer. What advice do you have for junior developers to find their first job? Uh, so two things. Uh, I would say the reason oftentimes why junior developers get passed on is you know, because a lot of time goes into coaching them before they become self-sustainable on their own. And so there's two ways to overcome that. It's like you either go to a company that will provide you and has the funding to provide you with that mentorship. And usually that's a big company uh, to, you know, help you grow as a developer. or the other uh, way is, you know, while whatever, you know, job you have, uh, you kind of like build up a portfolio of, of your own projects, which showcases your uh, drive towards, you know, sh- showing your potential future clients or employee, em- employers that uh, you have a drive to work independently and figure out problems on your own. Because that's oftentimes the issue with junior developers is like they get stuck and they can't, you know, like after they get stuck, they can't really move forward without guidance or help from others. And oftentimes if you, if it's a small company, you don't have the right resources to accommodate a junior developer. So as a junior developer, like you have to showcase, show that you have the initiative to work independently and there's a few different ways of going about it. Like I said, a couple of different ways of going about it. It's like you either develop your own portfolio, show, you know, show that, you know, show your next boss or employer or like startup that uh, you take the initiative into learning new skills and 
improving your skill sets outside of your job. And then there's the other side of that, which is like you just work with the bigger company that has the budget uh, to support you for a year or two before you learn and, and work independently. I know, and this is my opinion. I think a lot of new developers have the attitude, oh, I've done a six-month coding academy. I'm ready to take on the world, right? And in reality, they probably don't know a little about software development, right? They still have a lot to learn. Yeah, from what I'm like, you know, from what I'm hearing for like hiring managers, it's like that, you know, only like a very small percentage of them works successfully in a new job, right? But like I said, like again, like you need to place yourself in a successful situation for, you know, to be successful in your job. And so oftentimes it's like you need to find the right uh, job match for yourself. And, you know, a company that will help you grow. And like you said, most companies are going to hire you. They need to train you, right? They're going to expect you to go day one, perform. Most companies are going to say, hey, we have a budget to train you for six months, right? I just, uh, yeah, I mean, like there's companies that have that budget, right? Like to, to train you and like oftentimes startups that are like that need to move really fast and they need to, uh, you know, they need to control their spending aren't going to invest in training junior developers. And so that's, that's, and it's, it's, I would say it's like, you know, it's a potential, you know, recipe for disaster. If you, if you, I guess, join a startup where you kind of like get overlooked for it as far as like training goes and you can't really. So I think both like, you know, like both tech companies and, you know, boot campers kind of like, maybe know that or maybe if they don't like that's my advice to them is to kind of like work on your portfolio independently of whatever job it is you're doing and showcase that you can take a project uh end to end ship something so do um, so you recommend a new developer try to get a job at a startup or, or a big company or it just depends on the, his situation his other situation yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it just depends. Yeah, the big companies usually have the resources and the budget to train you, or, uh, you know, like you have to kind of like make up for it by, you know, building products in your spare time and showcase that you can take without help from others, uh, that you're able to ship a product, uh, from, you know, initial concept to completion. So, follow question talk about new developers. How about the developers out there been they're like the mid-level senior level developers, but they're like quote unquote, we'll say they were stuck, right? They're they had the same job, they can't get promoted, and they can't do anything else, right? What do you put advice you have for them like to try to jump start like, like pose their like senior developers, they want to become a CTO or VP of, of development. Or they, I mean, they want to go to the next level. What advice you have for them? Um, um I'm not, you know, like I'm, I'm not an expert on this matter, like, you know, in corporate USA, but like oftentimes I know, you know, like you can do really well on interviews if you really prepare for them, prepare for them well. Uh, and if you land a job at like, you know, Amazon or like Facebook, even if, or not, you know, if you land a job at Facebook or Google, you're probably set, but you can land good jobs by just preparing well for the interview. And after, you know, getting some experience at like a, at like a company, like a fan company, for example, like anyone will hire you. So, uh, it's probably okay to switch positions and in order to, uh, grow 
is my advice. And how that's done, uh, I, I can't really, you know, like how, how you do that. Like I can't really okay. provide guidance. On so let's say change the subject again. So you do a lot of traveling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk about some of your like favorite travel destinations. And is this something you've always done your whole life? Travel a lot? I mean, not travel a lot, but I mean, you, I mean, you do a lot of posts on social media, different places you go. I think you were in Mexico a little while ago, different places you go to. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I love to travel. I, I would say there's probably people that travel a lot more than me, but like for me, like I love the coast, man. I, I love like California coast. I, uh, I love, you know, Oregon coast. Washington's coast is okay too. But for some reason, it's just like, like I got a lot sunnier down, you know, further south you go. So I like sun. Uh, but yeah, like I said, like I, I, I enjoy ocean. So that's why I also lived uh, in Hawaii for, you know, like three years and I kind of missed that. And so Seattle has some, you know, you know, like it has, you know, Puget Sound, all of that, but it's, it's not the same as like the kind of ocean where you can go and, you know, like surf, like, you know, uh, I don't know. It's just different feel for like, you know, like more tropical weather. Is, is, I yeah. I know in Seattle, it's like what changed July 14th. And the joke is that it's still in the month of January. Right. Yeah, I mean, like until yesterday, it just felt like it was winter. So. I think we've only been to <laughs> 75 degrees like four times since April or something like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, for me, like, travel is important, yeah. Um, so that's how you get your break, so to speak? Yeah, that's I also, like, it. pick my cities based on, like, the kind of, like, if they have good food, like, I'm definitely on my interest, you know, like, <laughs> Texas, one place I haven't been, I'm really trying to go to. They have, like, you know, the Texas barbecue. I still haven't had experience. I've been to Dallas, but I just flew through there, so I was only there for a day. But I want to check out Austin, uh, you know, other other cities down there as well. Yes. So, David, talk about why HR is important to a small business or startup. Oh, HR. Uh, like, which part of the HR? Recruiting, managing? That's a great question. You'd be surprised how many people I go to, you know, about Kevin's HR. They're like, we don't, we're not hiring or yeah. we're not doing this specific thing. Yeah, that's a good point. HR is so expensive, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's just like so many different, like, you know, recruiting, like right now we're just trying to come up with a scalable solution that gives us a clear overview where our best candidates are coming from so that we can expand into those spaces and like trying to pick which solutions to use for our applicant tracker, tracking, et cetera, et cetera. For the most part, we've gotten by with like word of mouth and referrals. And that's how we built out like a database of candidates. But now... What well, like you know, now that we're decided to build a platform, like we're looking to uh, reach out to hundreds of thousands of developers, and like we need something there. How do you, how do you manage that, right? You like, yeah. How like you know, like do we spam them? Like, are they yeah. gonna get pissed off about that? Like, I'm not sure. I, mean, I guess we're in some way like we're still a startup, so we're just gonna be testing it. Uh, and then how do we manage all of that? Like, how do we create like onboarding for them? How do we? Uh, you know, how do we make sure, uh, how do we make sure, uh, you know, we're just set legally, uh, in every country that we do hire. Right. And so right now, luckily in some way, you know, like we aren't focused in hiring in the U S just yet as much or at all. And, you know, HR is a lot, you know, less strict than some of these countries. And, 
not because like, you know, like not, not because that like, you know, we have some HR issues, but it's just like here, if you make some, like an HR mistake, like it could cost you a big lawsuit, right? Like, I mean, I, you tell me, like, <laughs> so that's why we're kind of like staying away from, yeah. you know, like even the States, like, you know, it, it's, it's different of location. That's just how politics, but usually if you're like a, from a democratic state, mm-hmm. it's more laws. Like, you know, like New York, California, Washington has way more laws mm-hmm. and states are considered like, quote unquote, conservative, like Texas, Idaho have way, way less laws. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so politics play a lot, big part of it too, I think. Yeah. So right now we're trying to keep it like very simple. Like we have like, you know, like our onboarding for any and like you know, payment processes set up for each countries that we do business develop or like not, or we do business in. And, you know, the HR laws there are not too crazy. Like, you know, we just need to work, you know, they need to have an established business set up uh, in order to work as a contractor in most countries. And that's like that we provide guidance for that. But here in the U.S., there's just so many more laws where like, you know, like if someone works more than this hours and technically they're your employee, then like, then there's like, you have to like pay benefits. Like, and if you don't like, you know, all hell could break loose. Uh, versus in other countries, like they just care, like what's the hourly rate that they get paid for? And like, they don't care about benefits. They don't care about like, you know, time off, like give them more work. Like they'll yeah. do more. And HR has so much perception too, right? Oh, I perceive my, my boss treating me unfairly, right? You right, know? right. Perception has a lot to do with the two. Yeah. And like, you know, things like discrimination, things like that isn't as, I mean, it's, it's probably like a big problem in those countries, but not in the kind, in the way we do our business, right? Like we, like, uh, you know, like we have, we're pretty inclusive. We have like, you know, female developers, we have like developers of various, you know, like backgrounds and ethnical, uh, uh, ethnical backgrounds and, you know, developers from all different countries. Right. So uh, to me, like those, those things, uh, you know, like I feel like sometimes in us, it's like some people are out to kind of get you. And so in other countries that you don't have as much like, you know, legal companies trying to sue you just because like you, you know, created like a wrong onboarding doc or whatnot. So yeah, like, I like, I like to say, you know, HR and HR, like people, are your best resource, however, comma, people also suck too. Right. 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 So for example, like, you know, like my partner who works at Indeed, uh, you know, and he runs their incubator, all of his emails before they go out are checked literally checked by a, by a lawyer because HR is just such a huge, there's so many legalities here in the U S attached to HR. Right. Uh, and so for that reason, for right now, we're kind of like staying clear from, you know, doing business in the U S because you can maybe get in trouble quickly. So, and then for that regard, I mean, that's like where your service comes in handy, right? Because <laughs> So David, I understand you have a gift for our listeners. Yeah. For anyone that's looking to do any kind of software development or just, you know, uh, you know, looking to build the next product or just like expand their team, like we'll happy to take off 10% from uh, our hourly rate for anyone that's, you know, like I said, looking to either scale up their startup or looking to launch their MVP or whatnot. Um, 
so that's that's our gift to our listeners i guess and uh, yeah reach out and happy to discuss even if it's just uh just a discussion so david can you share your social media for yourself and your company so people can reach out to you um yeah i can be found on linkedin um like you can check my uh uh find me under my name david stepanian and facebook same thing um david stepanian stepanian those are the two things that i probably check the most uh and you can always reach me by my email which is david at thirstysprout.com and for our listener we'll have the, the link to his gift and his social media on, on our show notes and you can find the show notes at www.cabinethlblog.com and be sure to share this uh, episode with your friends and your network so david we'll come to the end of our talk can you give us any advice or wisdom or anything you want to talk about? Stay strong. I mean, we're living in a, in a odd time because of this pandemic and, you know, like a lot of entrepreneurs are burning out because of, you know, isolation or whatnot. And just I'm, my advice is stay strong, reach out to your peers and, you know, find other ways to connect if it's not in person. Thanks. Okay. Thank you for your time, David. I really appreciate it. I had no problem. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. And remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you. And remember to be great every day. Don't you know? Pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know? Pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know? Pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know? Pump it up.